and welcome to the Navicast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 141st episode of the Nauticast titled, Look Upon My Works, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Tyrion 13, in which Tyrion is pretty sure that he didn't do anything wrong at all with the wildfire. If anything, and I think, Emmett, you're going to agree with this, it's all Stannis' fault. A perfectly healthy strategy of deflection. It reminds me of Theon, and you know, it's always a good sign when you remind someone of Theon Greyjoy. (laughs) That always means you're on the right path. The most moral man in Westeros, Theon of House Greyjoy. The most sensible, capable role model that Westeros has to offer. Intelligent, <laughs> compassionate. Lo- Anyways, yes. That I, I, resume of accomplishments, yeah. Yes. Choking on bullshit right now. Anyways, <laughs> as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the Warwick Galley, Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wielder of the Valyrian steel trident summoner, the blade that brings the deep ones. Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heel of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Harold the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assisted to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyria, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, his his Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel of the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, one of the Eastern Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Bros, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the per- Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Low Entrident, True Master of the Bayfort, and True Master of Coin, Laura Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyonce's Favorite Stand, Ambassador of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies, and Gentle Thems. Haldiver, the way for T-Well, A.A. Ron, Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken, Forsaken, yeah, that's good, A.A. Ron, Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshall Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils, wherein every count votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who Is Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, Prince Rickard Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Pat, Ira with the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Boneway, Lord Charles Tyrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Mander, Defender of the Marches, High Emotional of the Reach, War in the South, and the Heir of House Tyrell, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Master of Source, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. B-Word, Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of Feel Good Times, Lady Ivory Dane, Aspiring Noble Author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardens of the South, and Patron of Free Wheeling Bisexuals. And our newest member of the Small Council, everyone give a warm welcome to Lady Jamiza, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Thank you to all of our Small Councilors, and welcome to Lady Jamiza. Am I getting that name right? Probably fucking not, but... 
Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much to all our counselors, as always, and a special welcome to Lady Jamisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially talk about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devils, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter Sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week is a two-part question from Sir James K., a Sworn Sword patron. Given that we're doing a Tyrion chapter, we'll talk about the second question. And he asks, this question you may be saving for down the road, but I gotta ask, who do you think Tyrion's father is? Personally, I find Tyrion being the only son of Tywin, Jamie and Cersei being born from Eris, the most poetic. Long may your podcast reign, gentlemen. Thank you so much, James, for the question. And this is a question we've touched on before, but I think this is like a constantly kind of evolving topic in the fandom, mm-hmm. to put it lightly. So where do you currently stand, Jeff? I guess is how I'll put it. Who is who is the father of our POV, Tyrion Lannister? In whatever sense, father may be said. You know, he's, he's the bi- biological father of someone there. So my opinion hasn't really changed since we had that conversation back. Was that John 1 where we did that all the way back in that episode? from like Somewhere episode? back in the mists of time, yeah. Yeah, one of our first few ones. Go back and listen to that episode. It was a great little debate. It was the first debate, not the last debate. There's going to be a debate at the end of this episode. Um, but the uh, my, my position hasn't changed. I, I think that Tyrion is the son of Ares and Joanna Lannister. Um, yes, I know that this is a... This is a a position that inspires a fair degree of, of, of dislike, and I understand why people dislike it. I'll outline the reasons why everyone dislikes this theory. One, people think it's stupid because then it negates what what uh, whatever Tyrion, Jenna Lannister, there we go, Jenna Lannister says about Tyrion being Tywin's only son. Two, it thinks it undercuts the famous line about Tyrion saying that he's Tywin writ small. I understand all of these narrative reasons, but I also think that there's, and this is a point I made back in the day, so if if you've gone back and listened to those early episodes recently, I apologize for that. But the point I made back in the day is that Tyrion being Aerys' son and not being Tywin's son doesn't necessarily mean that the imprint of Ty- Tywin Lannister is not on Tyrion. In the same way, and this is a point that our friend Aziz from History Westeros has made really, really well. In the same way that Jon Snow, not being the biological son of of Ned Stark, doesn't mean that he does not Ned Stark is not his father. You know, there's that famous line from Guardians of the Galaxy two. Um, I guess minor spoilers, so to speak, for a movie that's a few years old now. But sure. I may not be your father. Uh, you know, I may not be your daddy, but I am like your fa- whatever. Whatever the fucking line is, I can't remember. I, I always get like tongue tied on, on on the spot here. Um, the, the point being is that I, I think that Ty- that Tyrion being Tymon's son is more metaphorical and it reflects Tyrion's evolving mentality uh, in, in terms of who he is and what that means for him as a character, especially the darker character that emerges, that's here in, in A Clash of Kings, obviously, but definitely emerges in full force after A Storm of Swords and on into, into A Dance with Dragons. So uh, this is, um, this. Uh, I will say one last thing before I turn over to you. I've heard along the way that regardless of who is actually Tyrion's father, that George, this is not. This is a mystery that George has intentionally put into A Song of Ice and Fire to make us wonder. But George has intentionally made this a mystery in the narrative. And at some level, I think that means that he's going to resolve it maybe definitively one way or the other. Although I'd prefer if it was rather ambiguous. Because, you know, what else are we going to talk about when A Dream of Spring comes out two weeks from now? After that book is out, we, just, we don't have nothing to debate anymore, right? I, I, this, I, I get the feeling this might have been a more significant mystery in a different draft of A Song of Ice and Fire and maybe mm. more central. But 
Well, I, I think I've, I've come around to the evidence on it. What's always stuck in, always got in the way for me about Tyrion Targaryen, and this is not an in-universe reason, it's purely kind of a narrative logistical one, is just how you manage that reveal when the R plus L equals J stuff is so clearly central. Mm. And it always felt like, to me, it was always going to be, oh, and also Tyrion. And that just felt like like it would be a product of an over-enthusiastic pursuit of the secret Targaryen narrative, especially <laughs> since we also have young Griff. So I think it, it might I think I think it probably is true. I think there's enough evidence pointing at it. And I, I can see it definitely being part of his his background narrative. But I think the 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 question of whether this person's gonna be a ruler or get in Danny's way so clearly falls to John. So I'm just not sure how it's gonna work out in the broader narrative or if it's gonna work out in the broader narrative at all. Or yeah, just just remain kind of hinted at and kind of kind of a guiding influence in his life as regards the dragons. But yeah, it certainly yeah. doesn't in, you know, it doesn't like I've seen the argument that like like validates Tywin's treatment of him. And that that's that seems off base to me. The same way that people said after season eight that like, oh, I guess Robert was right to want Danny dead and Ned was wrong. It's like that was not the argument Robert and Ned were having. That wasn't about what Danny would do in the future. It was about whether it was okay to kill a fourteen year old girl now just on the basis that she might be a problem. And that was against that. And the same you know, it doesn't matter regardless of who fathered Tyrion, Tywin treated him in such a way that Tyrion shooting Tywin with a crossbow in the groin was really not a surprise. Right. So that's the end result of whatever it is their relationship was. So I think that that kind of stands above and beyond. And that's like, you know, those intimate character dynamics are are what's so important to Tyrion. And I think it's also significant that Tyrion already kind of had his personal rulership arc here in Clash, and Jon Mm -hmm. and Danny have theirs later. So I do think his relationship to it is going to have to be different, and so ours will be as well. I agree with that. I do wonder whether, like, George is, like, intentionally, like, comp- making it be, like, I-, I need a dragon rider. How- how's Tyrion going to be a dragon rider if he's one of the three heads of the dragon? How I think we- it might be, like, making Tyrion fit that narrative yeah. hole. I think that's a very good point. Which would be, I think, un- unsatisfying, ultimately, if, if that's the if that's the reason why Tyrion has to be Aerys the second son, because he has to ride a dragon, because only people of pure Valyrian or of Valyrian origin can, can ride a dragon. And and I hope the, the alternative narrative is the one that we get from uh, from Nettles from Fire and Blood Volume 1, where she's probably not even a Targaryen. She just happened to charm a, dra- a, a dragon into, into being ridden by her, which I think would be a... Which would be good. But that could be why George is spending so much time hinting that Tyrion's parentage actually matters, and it might not be from, from Time and Laster, so... Yeah. So thank you so much, James, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You are welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can join and get show notes, bonus episodes, merch, access to the Nata Slack, and more. Indeed. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Tyrion, he had had a lovely dinner with Cersei, got sent off in battle by a Sansa who was really appreciative of him defending her, and was now heading to the walls to wish Stannis of House Baratheon a warm, warm welcome to King's Landing with a special surprise. Let's find out the aftermath of Tyrion's Christmas present to Stannis in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 13. Motionless as a gargoyle, Tyrion Lannister hunched on one knee atop of Merlon. Beyond the mud gate and the desolation that had been the fish market and the wharves, the river itself seemed to have taken fire. Half of Stannis' fleet was ablaze, along with most of Joffrey's. The kiss of wildfire turned proud ships into funeral pyres and men into living torches. The air was full of smoke and arrows and screams. 
Well, the start of this chapter is definitely a reaction gift to Davos's chapter, and I am horrifically here for it. Tyrion watches as the Baratheon crews try to maneuver away from the wildfire, throwing down oars into the water to try to get out of the green hell. But there was no place to run. All the while, fires rage under the city walls of King's Landing from Tyrion's firepots, and Tyrion, he thinks it looks beautiful. A terrible beauty, like dragon fire. Tyrion wondered if Aegon the Conqueror had felt like this as he flew above his field of fire. That's kind of an interesting way to put it, Tyrion. Anyways, Tyrion feels the heat from the flames hitting his face, but he refuses to turn away. He realizes the gold cloaks were cheering, were cheering, but Tyrion's not in a cheerful mood. This was not enough to win the battle. More ships get hashtag boom roasted by the wildfire as hundreds of men burn or drown or do both. Tyrion obviously feels pity for these men, despite knowing that they are on the other side, right? No, this is actually Tyrion's reaction. Do you hear them shrieking, Stannis? Do you see them burning? This is your work as much as mine. Somewhere in that seething mass of men south of the Blackwater, Stannis was watching too. He never had his brother Robert's thirst for battle. He would command from the rear from the reserve, much as Lord Tywin Lannister was wont to do. Like as not, he was sitting a warhorse right now, clad in bright armor, his crown upon his head. A crown of red gold, Varys says, its points fashioned in the shapes of flames. Obligatory and perhaps only, but Tyrion is good, right? No. It's then that Joffrey finally makes his appearance, squeaking about his burning ships. Tyrion sees the wildfire burning his own ships, but rationalizes it as being the co- as the cost of doing business. Besides, the fleet was doomed anyways. Tyrion had watched it all from the outstretched arms of someone holding him up, and he knows that Bronn had whipped the oxen to raising the chain at the mouth of the Blackwater. Stannis could come into the Blackwater rush, but he could not get out. That was the hope anyways. The reality was that some of Stannis' ships were avoiding the wildfire. Some of the Mirish galleys ran to the south bank while eight ships had beached on the north bank. The last two lines of ships carrying the soldiers had mostly gotten away and might swing back for another try. That might take a bit of time. Even the bravest would be dismayed after watching a thousand or so of his fellows consumed by wildfire. Helene said that sometimes the substance burned so hot that flesh melted like tallow. Yet even so... Tyrion, though, is not delusional about his own men. He knows that they break if the battle was going against the Lannisters. Jocelyn Bywater had told him that. And then Tyrion notices dark shapes moving through the burned-out ruins of the riverfront. Time for another sortie, he thought. Men were never so vulnerable as when they first staggered ashore. He must not give the foe time to form up on the north bank. Tyrion sends a runner to Lord Jocelyn that there's enemy troops on the north bank. He also wants his trebuchets to pivot 30 degrees west to engage the troops on the shores. At that, Joffrey starts yelling about, he was supposed to have the trebuchets. He says all this with his visor up to let out some of the heat. Tyrion then promptly shuts the visor and tells him to keep it shut for safety, but Joff can have the trebuchets. It was as good a time as any. Flinging more firepots down onto burning ships seemed pointless. Joff had the antler men trussed up naked in the square below, antlers nailed to their heads. And when they'd been brought before the Iron Throne for justice, he had promised to send them to Stannis. A man was not as heavy as a boulder or cask of burning pitch and could be thrown a deal farther. Some of the gold cloaks had been wagering on whether the traitors would fly all the way across the Blackwater. Be quick about it, your grace, he told Joffrey. We'll want the trebuchets throwing stones again soon enough. Even wildfire does not burn forever. Okay, I thought I was only going to do one of these, but second obligatory, but Tyrion is good here! He's not. Joffrey heads off all psychotically gleeful that he gets to commit some war crimes. Tyrion tells Sir Osmond Kettleblack to keep Joffrey safe, which the knight amiably agrees to do. Tyrion, Joff- Tyrion recalls warning Trent and Kettleblack to protect the king with the threat of them dying if they didn't. Tyrion had surrounded Joff with a dozen gold cloaks and then thinks he's doing a shit ton to protect Joffrey. He wants Cersei to do the same for Aliyaya. 
No sooner was Joff off than a runner came panting up the steps. My lord, hurry! He threw himself to one knee. They've landed men on the tourney ground. Hundreds! They're bringing up a ram to the king's gate! Tyrion curses and starts moving down the steps. Pod waits for him with his horse, and he, Pod, and Mandamore ride to the king's gate. When they arrive, they hear the ram hitting the gate, and Tyrion notices a ton of wounded men around the gate. He orders everyone to mount up. He wants nose in command. They need to make the attack. No. A shadow detached itself from the shadow of a wall to become a tall man in dark gray armor. Santa Clegane wrenched off his helm with both hands and let it fall to the ground. The steel was scorched and dented. The left ear of the snarling hound sheared off. A gash above one eye had sent a wash of blood down across the hound's old burn scars, masking half his face. Yes, Tyrion faced him. Clegane's breath came ragged. <sighs> Bugger that, and you... A sellsword steps up and says they've attacked three times, but they've taken 50% casualties. And with the wildfire, Tyrion cuts them off. They're not fighting an attorney. Get on your fucking horses, all of you. Even Sandor. It's only then that Tyrion notices the whites in Sandor's eyes and realizes he's terrified. Tyrion tries reasoning with Sandor Clegane. They need to disperse the man ramming the gate. Ah, but Sandor has a different idea. Open the gates, let them come in and surround and kill them. Excellent. This is my preferred strategy when I'm defending cities at Rome to total war. Regardless, Sanders not going out again. Sir Mandamore steps up and declares that the king's hand has given an order. Follow it. Bugger the king's hand. But the hound's face was not sticky with blood. It was as pale as milk. Someone bring me a drink. A gold cloak officer handed him a cup. Clegane took a swallow, spit it out, flung the cup away. Water? Fuck your water. Bring me wine. Tyrion realizes that Sandor Clegane is dead on his feet, so now he needs to figure out who's going to lead the attack. Mandamore, eh, dangerous, but not a dude people want to follow. Another crash of the gate as the sun sets to green and orange light. Tyrion wonders how long the gate would hold. This is madness, Tyrion thought, but sooner madness than defeat. Defeat is death and shame. Very well, I'll lead the sortie. If he thought that would shame the hound back to valor, he was wrong. Clegane only laughed. You? Tyrion could see the disbelief on their faces. Me, Sir Mander, you'll bear the king's banner. Pod my helm. The boy ran to obey. The hound leaned on what the hound leaned on that notched and blood streaked sword and looked at him with those wide white eyes. Sir Mandan helped Tyrion mount up again. Form up, he shouted. Tyrion gets up on his stallion, adorned in his crimson cloak and coat of mail. Pod hands him his helmet and shield. Tyrion moves his horse in a circle, eyeing each of the men. He realizes there's only a few men who have saddled up. He rakes the rest with a contemptuous look. They say I'm only half a man, he said. What does that make the lot of you? That shamed them well enough. A knight mounted helmless, helmetless and, and rode to join the others. A pair of sellswords followed, then more. The king's gate shuddered again. In a few moments, the size of Tyrion's command had doubled. He had, he had them trapped. If I fight, they must do the same or they are less than dwarves. You, you won't hear me shout out Joffrey's name, Tyrion told them. You won't hear me yell for Castle Rock either. This is your city, Stannis means to sack, and that's your gate he's bringing down. So come with me and kill the son of a bitch. Tyrion unsheathed his axe, wheeled the stallion around and trotted toward the sally port. He thought they were following, but never dared to look. And that is the synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 13. A Clash of Kings is truly climaxing, phrasing. This is an exciting chapter, also phrasing. And even in the midst of it, things continue to ramp up. What did you think of this chapter, sir? So we've had a Sansa chapter. We've had a Davos chapter. And now we get to our third and final POV for the Battle of the Blackwater. Tyrion Lannister, Master of Ceremonies. <laughs> this is the chapter both Tyrion and George have been building up to all through his story in A Clash of Kings. Tyrion has been setting his chain and wildfire trap, and George has been concealing it from us. Now the board is set. The pieces are moving. 
The reader has barely caught their breath from the explosive ending of Davos III when we flip to the other side of the battlefield. Tyrion Thirteen is a huge chapter, in scope if not in length. It starts on a dramatic note and keeps getting more intense every step of the way. It certainly does that, and I was struck on reread of Tyrion Thirteen with an overwhelming feeling of, how the hell did Tyrion end up here? Tell me I was the only person who imagined Tyrion's face superimposed on Paul Rudd's body from Hot Ones saying, hey, look at us, look at us. I probably was. Tyrion's story in A Clash of Kings is George conducting a masterclass of setup and payoff in the narrative. And I like how George pays off Tyrion's investment with Wildfire with that pyrotechnics explosion from Davos 3. But I also like how this chapter is the start of the larger narrative payoff for all the setup for Tyrion's story in A Clash of Kings. Because even though Tyrion is in a place no one, perhaps even George himself when he started writing A Song of Ice and Fire, thought that he could end up at the start of this chapter, by chapter's end, Tyrion is already off doing more crazy shit. He's leading the charge against Stannis' men attacking the King's Gate. It, it really has been a wild ride to get here. And even though we have one Tyrion post-Blackwater chapter left to cover in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 13 and 14, which I actually think was probably one chapter before George ended up splitting them into two, are the climax of Tyrion's arc in A Clash of Kings. I totally agree. The The final chapter for Tyrion in A Clash of Kings is kind of a postscript in the way that Ned's chapter is in mm-hmm. A Game of Thrones. They're very similar. They're both kind of in in terrible, like, stinking sails, and everyone's forgotten about them, and they're wounded and having fever dreams. And the climax for Ned, of course, happens in the throne room, and the climax for Tyrion happens here on the battlefield. So, after the explosive ending of Davos III, the reader is naturally eager to get back into Tyrion's head because he planned all that. He stands, quote, motionless as a gargoyle, as if turned to stone by the sight, like a victim of Medusa. Remember, in Davos's first chapter, the way it started was he saw the gargoyle seem to stir in the shimmering air above the fire burning the gods. Now Tyrion has become that same figure for this much larger fire, an observer from a distance taking it all in. His gaze puts it all in context for us. Between Tyrion and the wildfire are the burnt-out remains of the riverside, and of course that's his work as well. Yet the fires burning down below the walls are nothing next to the wildfire. Tyrion compares the flames to banners. If so, it's like the wildfire itself has just won the war. Unlike Davos, caught in the fog of war, Tyrion can see that the wildfire explosion has claimed even more Lannister ships than Baratheon ones. He can see highborn and common men alike trapped in the face of the fire. As you were saying last week, we don't know what orders Tyrion gave those men, but he seems to have sent them to death in cold blood. How does Tyrion react to what he's done? His reaction is complicated. He's equal parts thrilled and horrified, both clear-eyed and in denial. Tyrion is not so far removed from the experience of those fighting the battle as to shrug off their suffering. He hears the shrieks and the prayers, whereas, honestly, I don't think Joffrey does. As Tyrion shields his eyes from the burning blasts, I think of of Oppenheimer's reaction to the, the Trinity test, the successful nuclear test, when he quoted the Bhagavad Gita, Now I am become death, a destroyer of worlds. Tyrion thinks that he saw this unfold a thousand times in his mind's eye, Yet he has meddled with powers he did not fully understand, and so brought about a disaster on a scale he did not anticipate. This creates, if not regret, it creates a a kind of a sickening sensation of vertigo for Tyrion, one at odds with his desire to do justice. 
So Tyrion feels the need to project that guilt elsewhere. He doesn't want to consciously feel it, so he has to pretend it's somebody else's fault. He settles on Stannis. Tyrion thinks to himself that all the misery on the river is just as much Stannis' fault as it is his. Our fleet was doomed in either case, he tells Joffrey, because Stannis was determined to destroy it, and he would have sensed a trap if we didn't send in some of our ships. On a literal level, of course, this is ridiculous. <laughs> Tyrion ramped up wildfire production. We saw him do it. Tyrion had the chain built. We saw him do it. Tyrion sent out the driftwood ships. We didn't see him do it, but we know he did it. Stannis was uh, not consulted in any of that, to say the least. He had no way of knowing he was sending his men into this level of hell. Into battle, sure, obviously that carries with it its own share of horrors, but the wildfire is its own level. Tyrion knows that and is just pretending it's not the case. He's desperate to avoid thinking of himself as the villain in this situation, so he insists that it's Stannis' fault for putting him in that position in the first place. In this regard, Tyrion's wildfire blast is his red wedding. Tywin, too, is eager to avoid facing consequences for his actions and, you know, comes up with rationalizations afterward. Indeed, and I think you're hitting on a brilliant parallel between Tywin and Tyrion. They are both deflecting guilt from their own actions onto others, and both do morally suspect things, all for Joffrey. In Storm, Tywin will say that the fault with the Red Wedding lies with Walter Frey and blame shifts the, get the breaking of guests right onto him. But as we know, in actuality, from the Stormasaurus epilogue, all planning was made between Tywin, Roos, and Walter Frey. But Tywin isn't present at the Red Wedding, so we can claim innocence. I had no idea that it was going to happen. I wasn't even there. I was in King's Landing doing... King's hand-handing things. I don't know if that makes sense. Tyrion has no such claim here at the Blackwater, though. The extent of the damage does surprise him, as you were pointing out. It is his plan, though. It's his work, and that's what's causing all the carnage that he's witnessing. Now, this is what's interesting. Because can we see Tyrion's reaction, blame-shifting of his magical apotheosis on Stannis in similar lens as a certain other person who used magic to achieve his ends, namely Stannis and killing Brenly and then Sir Courtney Penrose thereafter. The Lord of Light willed that my brother die for his treasons. Who did the deed matters not. Back at Devos 2, Stannis refuses to acknowledge culpability in taking part in the sorceress means of killing Brenly, either because he's in denial, lying, or doesn't understand what happened. Perhaps all three at the same time. Probably. But he does say, I dream of it sometimes, of Renly's dying, a green tent, candles, a woman screaming in blood. Stannis looked down on his hands. I was still in bed when he died. Your Devon will tell you. He tried to wake me. Dawn was nigh. My lords were waiting, fretting. I should have been a horse, armored. I knew Renly would attack at break of day. Devon says I thrashed and cried out, but what does it matter? It was a dream. I was in my tent when Renly died, and when I woke, my hands were clean. So let's look a little bit clo more closely at those wordings. Stannis sees the green tent, candles, screaming, and blood. That's precisely what Tyrion is seeing on the macro level with the green wildfire, fires burning underneath King's Landing, air full of smoke, arrows, and screams. Yet both of these men can't comprehend the supernatural horror they've unleashed that's killed people, so they retreat into self-deception. I want to say it's not exactly pretty, what these guys are doing here and how people tend to blame shift and push the blame away from themselves. At the same time, it is an entirely human reaction that Tyrion, Stannis, Tywin, and everyone else who has ever done a wrong thing who ends up pushing the blame on someone else has when they are faced with the consequences thereof. I think we, we can't fully anticipate the consequences of our actions, and at some level, we believe that lets us off the hook. Because like, oh, how could I? I didn't intend that. Therefore, I should be blameless. And, you know, we all have to painfully, gradually accept the idea that that's not how it works. 
And, you know, I don't think anyone does a perfect job of that. Even as Tyrion is full of it on a literal level, however, he has a point on a more poetic level about Stannis' culpability. When he says, Like as not, Stannis was sitting a warhorse right now, clad in bright armor, his crown upon his head. A crown of red gold, Varys says, its points fashioned in the shapes of flames. As I was saying in Davos 3, Stannis played with fire, and now his ships are getting burned. The demon is eating his own, as Davos put it. These are the wages of signing up with a fire god. Both Tyrion and Stannis, as you were saying, have meddled with the dark powers, and they are hardly the first to do that in Westerosi history. Tyrion directly compares the Inferno to the Targaryen's field of fire, saying that in both cases there is a terrible beauty. The same is true of the Targaryen civil wars, even after the dragons were gone, of the first Blackfire Rebellion, the Battle of the Redgrass Field. As a, we, we know this is so important to George because of how well he writes about it in The Sworn Sword. I will never forget the way the sun looked when it set upon the Redgrass Field. Ten thousand men had died, and the air was thick with moans and lamentations, but above us the sky turned gold and red and orange, so beautiful it made me weep to know that my sons would never see it. This is George's understanding of the primal appeal of combat as spectacle and uh, almost otherworldly intensity, appealing to the id that is, theoretically at least, left unsatisfied by domestic life. After all, I've been talking all through A Clash of Kings about George's beautiful use of color in this book and how much I love that, and here we have the ultimate example of it. A dozen great fires raged under the city walls where casks of burning pitch had exploded, but the wildfire reduced them to no more than candles in a burning house, their orange and scarlet pennons fluttering insignificantly against the jade holocaust. The low clouds caught the color of the burning river and roofed the sky in shades of shifting green. It takes my breath away, as it takes Sansa's breath away near the end of the battle. So how do you reconcile wonder and terror? How do you both have a feeling of awe at that beauty and just horror at what's actually happening. And that's, that's a, I think, something to struggle with in, in, in art and depictions of violence that George is getting at here. Yeah, you know, you've got to live with the, the conflict, I guess, is the only way really to, to do it. I agree, yep. I, it, it's, it's hard to, you know, you and I both love action movies at some level, you know. You can, of course. You know, you know, you can get the action movies of the car flying through the air, being blown up and stuff like that. Or, you know, the the, the Death Star and all the subcontractors dying when Luke Skywalker, the terrorist, accidentally kills all everyone there. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, obviously. But, you know, there's people that are that are dying in that spectacle. But you're like, ooh, ah, that's great. But I, I do love that point that in your your point really throughout the book about how George really brought the color into the story for A Clash of King. I mean, you called it an explosion of colors in the past. And I think we're seeing that quite literally here, but also metaphorically too, with the denouement of all those colors. Because colors, they dazzle the eye and mind, making us marvel at them. But but why? I think here the colors work as symbols, showing us the beauty and horror of war at the same time. There's something imprinted in our DNA. And this is just, this is probably theorize at some level this is my own theory which makes us go holy shit when we see when our mind's high sees the wildfire it's both a holy shit that's awesome feeling and a holy shit that's horrifying feeling both at the same time the lights and fires dazzle even as we know that those same fires mean that men living people with family stories lives are dying in the most horrific way possible 
Now, I, I know this is a fictional story and that Davos and Stannis and Tyrion and all those fictional men burning on the fictional Blackwater River aren't actually real. And yet in writing this chapter, I think George ended up going deep into the experiences of actual human beings and embodying them into these fictional characters because people burning to death and dying in war and battle, it's not fantasy. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not making up science here. This is what's always, this is what's happened in the past, what happens is happening currently and will always happen in human history. We've always had war, always will have war, and humans are going to always marvel in the terrible beauty and shrink away from the screams of those dying horribly, often at the same time. So you have those kind of complex, very adult, mature mixture of emotions that reflects the audience struggle, and then the camera pans over to Joffrey, and the tone shifts back to the bitter comedy that comes up so often in Tyrion chapters. Joffrey is moved to the point that his voice breaks because the Lannister ships are burning. But nothing about the people on those ships, uh-uh, only about Joffrey's toys. Joff points them out with his new sword, underlining George's point. The king cares only for objects that show off his power. Same goes for his own conduct during the battle. He's demanded the happy task of catapulting the antlermen into the shit. Tyrion just blew up hundreds of men to keep this feckless little sadist on the Iron Throne. Then again, Stannis himself threatened to catapult men from Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion. Only Crescent saying they might have to eat those men stopped him. <laughs> As Davos notes, Stannis does not possess a sadistic drive like Joffrey's. When he's uh, d- trying to get Edric Storm to go with him in Storm of Swords, he says, oh, There was no anger in Stannis, just an iron sense of duty. But if his iron sense of duty led him to the same conclusion as Joffrey, namely, let's catapult some dudes, does it matter? In both <laughs> cases, we're seeing an excess of kingly authority. George cuts to Joffrey right after Tyrion imagines Stannis sitting his horse and watching. These are the two kings on the sides of the Battle of Blackwater. You know, obviously, I think Stannis comes off less badly than Joffrey, <laughs> but only because it's really difficult to come off less badly than Joffrey. They're like a handful of characters who manage it. Congratulations right. to Stannis for not being one of those, I guess. Yeah, Ramsay, Roos, maybe, Walter Frey. Sure. Euron in ambition, Euron. at least. Yeah, and yeah. You know, Gregor, and we're already running low. Yeah, I think we're, we're reaching the limit here. Fargo Ho, there we go. I think that's there we I think go. about hit, hit the uh, the max level of characters who might be worse than Joffrey. But I think, like, too, like, isn't that just a Stannis mood, if there True. ever was one, of being less bad than the alternative that's out there? I mean, in A Dance with Dragons, Stannis is sometimes saying awesome shit about liberating Winterfell or dying in the attempt... And he's also burning people, too. Jermaine, to your point, though, in, in A Dance with Dragons, Stannis is up against the worst assholes of this series, the obviously villain-coded Freys and Boltons. Mm-hmm. So even if we don't like the guy, Stannis, some people out there don't like him as a character, whatever. We prefer him to Ramsay, Roos, and the idiot Freys at least, right? I hope so. But in A Clash of Kings, Stannis is villain-coded. He's the antagonist of this book, if not the villain. But still, you, you really can't get worse than Joffrey. I mean, we've, we've tried. We, we tried. And still, <laughs> the scale of Joffrey's atrocity is, is quite large. This is an interesting narrative technique that George uses to good effect in A Song of Ice and Fire. It puts morally questionable characters alongside just fucking despicable characters. For another example, think about the attempted child-murdering Jamie Lannister in A Storm of Swords with the Bloody Mummers, Roose Bolt, and Vargo Hote. And then think Jamie Lannister again in A Feast for Crows around all those asshole phrase he deals with at River Run. As Egret told John, it's all about where you're standing, and the same thing lies for the readers if we're going through A Song of Ice and Fire, and comparing Stannis, who is questionable at best, and comparing him against all those enemies. And I think that ends up leading us to a feeling of, yeah, I guess we Stannis is 
better than Joffrey, better than the phrase in the Boltons, but it doesn't necessarily make him good, as you were alluding to. And I think that's a that's a good use of your your kind of one note, uh, obviously horrible villains, which I think some people don't have patience with in general, but I think are perfectly appropriate when used well. Which yeah, like you have the bloody mummers, and they're there to throw Jamie into sharp relief and to make Jamie question whether he really wants to be like one of those guys, <laughs> or whether he wants to be more like Brienne. And then yeah, you have the Boltons and the phrase up against Stannis in the north, because I think the whole point we're leading to with Stannis is how far will we go? How far will we let this guy go as long as we're still technically up against obvious supervillains like the others, for example? I think that's right. the overall, like, you know, is it willing, you know, to sacrifice your humanity to save the world? That's the ultimate question. And the Boltons are kind of like a, a dress rehearsal for that. Obviously, Stannis is going up against Roos and Ramsay. Surely anything is worth taking down Roos and Ramsay. So it's fine he's burning people alive as they scream for their lives. Right? Everyone's on board. Right? And that's... <laughs> That's exactly, and we're having the same questions about Tyrion here. That's the, that's the that's the really effective writing on George's part. Mm-hmm. The point is, I think that on both sides of the Battle of Blackwater, we are seeing the battle through the eyes of those who feel forced to carry out the king's will, not the kings themselves. So, rather than the culmination of a rise to power, which is how it might be if Stannis was the POV or even Joffrey, our protagonists are dealing with the feeling of being subordinate to another, a cog in a system. Tyrion has to allow Joffrey to use the catapults for his hideous reindeer games, rather than using them to fling stones, which is, you know, what they're for. Just as Stannis' cause is dominated by the personal dynamic of the Baratheon brothers, Joffrey's reign puts Lannister dysfunction on display. The catapults are nicknamed the Whores, so this is how Joffrey frames his desire to use them. Mother promised I could have the Whores! That is that is a carefully written sentence, to say the least, in terms of how the Lannister family dynamic works. It puts an image in our heads of Cersei subjecting sex workers to Joffrey's cruel advances. As happens in the show, not from Cersei, but, you know, it's, it's a, plot, a plot event that happens in the show. And it's an interesting mm-hmm. inversion of Tywin, Tyrion, and Tysha. That Tywin came down so violently on a woman he deemed to be a sex worker. Whereas here, Joffrey is alluding to the possibility that Cersei will gift him some. The Lannisters break each other's boundaries constantly. Their personal desires drive their politics. We've seen that throughout the story. Tyrion is motivated to keep Joffrey safe here, not out of love for his nephew, nor loyalty to his king, but to save the woman Cersei thinks he is fucking. That's how bad things have gotten in House Lannister. The enemy is at the gates, but they are focused inward. And we're going to see that again with Cersei and Sansa Six. Agreed. And, and a line that's, that stuck out to me on this review was Tyrion remembering the reaction of some of his troops to, to the antler men. A man was not as heavy as a boulder or a cask of burning pitch and could be thrown a deal farther. Some of the gold cloaks had been wagering on whether the traders would fly all the way across the Blackwater. Now, we, we know that Joffrey is a psychopathic shit. We've seen that in evidence in almost every circumstance. We've seen him on page or heard of his off-page exploits. But those gold cloaks wagering on how far these men would fly, are all of these guys psychopaths like Joffrey? Probably not. Here's the thing about leadership, and especially military leadership. It's not just about moving pieces on a map, having the best tactics and strategy for winning a battle or a war. It's so much more about setting the command climate that is the culture of a unit or an organization. Now, the contrast to Joffrey, the clear contrast as opposed to Stannis to Joffrey, is Rob Stark in, in A Clash of Kings. And Rob Stark admittedly did some dirt out in the Westerlands, stealing livestock and burning and such and such and such. But by and large, his conduct on the ground has been relatively just, at least relatively just compared to Tywin Lannister and the rest of the people who are out there fighting in this war. Thus, we don't hear about the men he's commanding doing egregious war crimes, Roose Bolton, who is operating practically independent, notwithstanding. 
We both talked a lot about the character of Steelshanks Waltons, one of Roose Bolton's retainers, the type of person Jamie Lannister considers the median soldier of Westeros, the guy who follows orders, also rapes and kills when his blood is up, and then returns to raise a family up in the north. But I think I'm beginning to disagree with Jamie's perspective, in so much as your Steelshanks Waltons or those gold cloaks who are wagering on war crimes are symptoms of the larger disease of who is at the top. Bruce Bolton and Joffrey Baratheon, Joffrey Baratheon, Joffrey Lannister, Joffrey Baratheon, both at the same time. Now, to be fair, having a Cassus Belly engaging in more honorable conduct in the war as a theater commander does not necessarily preclude the lower ranking soldiers from doing evil deeds. Think of the they lay with Lannister, they lay with lion signs draped around the necks of Riverlands women that Jamie and Brienne pass along the river in, in Jamie's first chapter in Storm of Swords. People can be and are shitty regardless if there's a good leader at the top, a noble leader, a moral leader at the top. Still, I'd argue that the command climate that these gold cloaks, with these gold cloaks wagering on how far these prisoners will fly and trebuchets are doing so because they are symptomatic of a Joffrey who orders men to fight to death over trivial matters, shoots crossbow bolts at starving peasants, and who also has Sansa stripped and beaten in an earlier Sansa chapter. Moreover, I think that George is perhaps subconscious, even to himself, showing a very Catholic understanding that sin begets more sin. Joffrey is not the legitimate king of the Seven Kingdoms and does not deserve to sit the Iron Throne. That was the original sin, him being placed onto the Iron Throne. And from that original sin flowed the murder of Ned Stark's household and then Ned Stark himself thereafter. There's almost, I want to say, a narrative sunk cost fallacy with violence begetting more violence, people doing more and more deranged things all for Joffrey because the person and methods are are wrong. But it's worse than all that. The, the adults in the room, those who have the power to moderate Joffrey's abuses, are deciding to channel Joffrey's psychopathy rather than curb it. What was Tyrion's reaction to Joffrey trebucheting people into the Blackwater? It's, it's mostly annoying that the trebuchets are being used in a non-military function, but ultimately it's this short sentence. Be quick about it, your grace. It reminds me of how back in Tyrion's second chapter, how Tyrion decided to distract Joffrey from messing with his plans by dialing up a bit of, quote-unquote, Joffrey's justice for one turncloak captain of a ship called the White Hart. Here at the Blackwater, Tyrion is doing similar. He's throwing more bodies in Joffrey's way so as to prevent Joffrey from bungling the battle that he's attempting to win. At a level, it's understandable, right? For Tyrion, the semi-pragmatist to try to get shit done the right way and suppose that Joffrey does not want to do things the right way. And another... It's rotten to the core, and I think it's murder. And those gold cloaks wagering on those murders are symptomatic of Joffrey's toxic command climate, but also the enabling of that toxicity by those, Tyrion, Cersei, others who know better. Yeah, I think those are complex connections, and I think you, you, you lay them out well. I think it's one of those cases where each, each individual choice feels easier than it probably should because of a bunch of other individuals around you making the similar choice and, you know, sometimes making it more deliberately or nastier than you, and there's always a way to pass it off. And I think that it, it just becomes a, a way of no one ultimately dealing with the problem of Joffrey and the, and the way that allows the culture to spread. And, you know, I think that can happen with one leader. I think it can also happen with the larger system. You know, when you were, I was, I was thinking about how Jorah describes slavery in a storm of swords as basically working in Essos because it's in no one's interest to get rid of it. Everyone is profiting from this in some way. So even if someone's not personally a horrible, you know, person who enjoys flaying people alive, why are they going to rock the boat? Right. And the same thing applies on the Lannister side with Joffrey. Even the people who can clearly see what Joffrey is, who's who's going to be the first one to cross the line? Not Tyrion and not anyone else. 
So, as mind-blowing as the Wildfire Inferno was, it turns out not to have worked as well as Tyrion hoped. This is something George has said that he does not want magic to solve everything for his characters. Using the Shadow Babies didn't automatically guarantee Stannis the Iron Throne, and using Wildfire does not automatically guarantee the Lannisters will hold it. Some Baratheon ships are getting away. Enough to start landing men in significant quantities on the northern shore. This is bad news for the Lannisters. It's bad news for not only material reasons, now we have to expend our fighting men at the gates, but also because of morale. And Tyrion knows that morale is the all-important issue on both sides of the battle. He thinks back to Jocelyn Bywater telling him that his men will fight bravely, at first, if only to look good for each other, but by that same token, the first to run will have hundreds on his heels. Momentum cuts both ways. You win by acting like you're winning. You win before the fight simply by keeping your men fighting. That's the big theme of this chapter. And that's the logic of these destructive strategies that Tyrion is employing. That's his shadow on the wall. There's that great quote from Gangs in New York. You know how I stayed alive this long? All these years? Fear. The spectacle of fearsome acts. Somebody steals from me, I cut off his hands. He offends me, I cut out his tongue. He rises against me, I cut off his head, stick it on a pike. Raise it high up so all in the streets can see. That's what preserves the order of things. Fear. Tyrion is looking to strike fear into the hearts of his enemies, so as to keep morale stronger on his own side. He admits it, the terror is the point. He hopes that the rest of Stannis' men hold back for a while, instead of crossing because of what they're seeing happen to their fellow men. Or, so he hopes. <laughs> in truth, Tyrion knows it's not going to be enough. Stannis will still be able to cross eventually. And that's the bitter irony. All that planning, all that misery, and it's still only a half victory, as he says. Yet more fire and blood will be required. Right. And because I'm an extremely normal guy who pulls out his lands of ice and fire maps and starts trying to figure out where everything is occurring and then flips back to a Clash of Kings to try and piece it all together, I think I decided to try and sort out what's actually happening here from the on the military side of things. So, so the King's Gate is on the southwest corner of King's Landing with the tourney grounds to the slight northwest of the, of the King's Gate. Tyrion is somewhere close to the Mudgate observing the wildfire explosion. So how did Stannis' men get up or across the river towards the King's Gate? Possible answer, Tyrion notices that notes that eight chapters made it to the <laughs> Tyrion notes that eight ships made it to the north shore. So maybe the beach troops moved west along the north bank of the Blackwater. I don't think it's likely. I think the ships were the ships were beached along a part of the river that Tyrion was able to see, and they're fighting their way towards the Mudgate. It also seems like the farthest extent of the Baratheon advance was the first line of Baratheon ships that just got kaboomed by the wildfire. I think if we look back at Davos 3, Davos notes that south of the Blackwater, Davos saw men dragging crude rafts toward the water, while ranks and columns formed up beneath a thousand streaming banners. Now that Stannis has lost his fleet, the one thing that Stannis has going for him at this moment is the size of his host south of the Blackwater. So I think the left wing of his army constructed the same rafts that Davos observed on the right wing and crossed the Blackwater to begin ramming the King's Gate. Now, let me give Stannis a small amount of military credit here. Whether this was in Stannis' playbook or improv, I actually think it was probably part of the playbook and part of the plan, attacking two gates, the Mudgate and the King's Gate, works to spread Tyrion's smaller army out. That said, Tyrion has countermeasures in place. He's ordered the streets cleared so as to flex troops back and forth across the city to counter Stannis' moves. It's a risky strategy as he seems to only have the numbers to mass troops at one location at one time. If the Baratheons strike another gate while Tyrion's repelling an attack across the city, Tyrion runs the risk of not having enough men to hold the new gate under attack before he can flex back to that other gate. 
but it's really the only way that Tyrion can accomplish the mission of defending the city from Stannis. But Tyrion has one more advantage that Stannis doesn't, cavalry and the violence of action. Any initial wave of Baratheon troops crossing the river would be dismounted infantry and archers, and thus vulnerable to cavalry charge. And, as we'll find out next week, this will prove decisive to defending two gates when Stannis attacks both at the same time. Yeah, oh, it's 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 all about, you know, I, I, I remember thinking as a kid when I was playing, you know, like, games as simple as a risk that <laughs> it's all just about amassing the large amount of numbers at the right space, but mm-hmm. it's more just about the, the precise application of the kinds of number you have at, at just the right time. And I think, you know, Tyrion is more... Uh, kind of intuitively working than Tywin, you know, who's had more of experience at this, but you can still see Tyrion uh, sensing that ability. And, you know, even even Edmure, for all that, he, you know, he might mis- make mistakes in the larger picture, I think he understood, he had his roving cavalry force at yep. the Battle of the Force. Like, I have to have my precisely applied uh, unit at, at the, just the right moment. And that's that's how Tyrion can, can manage to stave off Stannis' clearly uh, numerically superior force. Hmm. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, he's going to have to do it himself as he increasingly realizes. So as, as Tyrion arrives at the King's Gate, George describes the groan of the gate giving way to the ram as, quote, the moans of a dying giant. Magical imagery dominates here because of the forces both Stannis and Tyrion have brought into play, and Tyrion's own men have paid the price. He orders them back out, and Sandor emerges from the shadows to object, just as he sprang from the shadows to save Sansa from falling. He is the dying giant, appropriate, given how tall he is. Sandor himself was a figure of Apocalypse in Davos Three, as you pointed out, but here he lets the hound mask fall, and he's just revealing the man beneath, and that man is terrified, more than terrified. Sandor is dead on his feet, as Tyrion puts it, reduced to a metaphorical zombie by his fear of fire. The mask has lost its ear, and Sandor's old burn wounds have opened. He developed the Hound persona to fight back his fear. If he becomes the monster in the darkness, if he becomes the thing that everyone fears, well, then he himself will no longer have to be afraid. Or so the theory goes, anyway. But cracks started to emerge with his growing sympathy for Sansa. Those cracks grew when he saw Stannis' fire banners emerge across the river, and now that he has faced the wildfire on the water... That's just brought the wall down inside around him. Sandor has been dragged back to the moment of his childhood trauma, rendered powerless even as he keeps killing everyone in his path. (laughs) He holds Tyrion and the Lannisters responsible for this, and so he is done working for them. And he's not the only one refusing to go back out. A sellsword comes forward to describe the battle. We been out. Three times. Half our men are killed or hurt. Wildfire bursting all around us. Horses screaming like men, and men like horses... Uh, This description of the battlefield has always haunted me. George Mm -hmm. frames war as a hideous inversion of nature. Men like horses and horses like men. The wildfire has made all of this worse. Tyrion has tested the borders of nature itself, and Sandor's unit faced unimaginable casualties as a result. Tyrion's response exemplifies his mindset as a commander. He is not technically wrong that he hired these men to do butcher's work, but as with the ship captains, he was not honest with them about the conditions in which they were going to be fighting. It is rich for Tyrion to act as though these men want raspberries and iced milk, the luxuries he has been reserving mostly for the upper crust. It's also galling that he disparages these sellswords as being more at home in tourneys than real fighting, given how little experience he has. Tyrion has created the extraordinary circumstances driving these men to the point of desertion. Get is pretending they're just lazy and cowardly. That's such bullshit, too. I mean, just to highlight your excellent point even more, when Davos saw Senator Clegane 
He watched as the Nada Knight drove his horse up onto the deck of a ship, killing his way aboard. Moreover, Davos also note that, notes that all the firepots and arrows are being fired from the walls, meaning that Clegane was attacking through a hail of projectiles fired by his own side. That is not cowardice in the least. It's going above and beyond the Call of Duty. Upgrade to Distinguished Service Cross. Add in that Sanders' party of swords, gold cloaks, and Lannister goons have taken 50% casualties. That's what we call in the biz combat ineffective. On that note about these guys taking a tremendous amount of casualties and going out on three sorties, how is it that Tyrion doesn't recognize that his men are outperforming the expectations that Sir Jas- Lord Jaslyn and future Lord Bronn put on them? I think it's because Tyrion has not been exposed to the dangers he's had others face. He's merely watched others do the fighting and killing for him. And that's in the long tradition of aristocracy and war. Tyrion has been a grand observer of others killing on behalf of him and his king. Motionless as a gargoyle are the opening words of this chapter, after all. Now, here's the thing. Is that actually an indictment of us as well as the reader? That Hmm. we are the people that look at a battle and are like, ooh... Ooh, 50% casualties. That doesn't... Wow, that that sounds really rough, dude. But you should really get back out there to the fight because I really want to see this narrative pay off really, really well. I'm not saying that it's necessarily an indictment of us. I am saying that I think that if Tyrion is, is the reader avatar here, which is something that I think George does specifically for this chapter, then perhaps we should be taking a little bit of a closer look at our own perspectives when we're looking at sending people out to fight and die and for the enjoyment, for our narrative enjoyment, so to speak. But again, that all then changes because Tyrion stops becoming the, the reader avatar here because it's all going to change. He's about to lead the charge out. I think certainly the the spectacle of violence is a huge is more of an issue than ever in the mass media age. Obviously, there are people, you know, way more qualified than me who have devoted a lot of study to that. But you know, uh, something like nine eleven is geared around the idea that mass media was going to cover it in a certain way and that was going to lead to certain actions. And I think George can easily be commenting on the role that an audience plays. That violence is never taken against just the victims; it's also something arrayed for other people to watch and to mm-hmm. take away something from. And that's that confers. That makes you a victim of it, I guess, in a weird ancillary way, but it also confers a responsibility upon you, and I think George is very much interested in that. It does take a naked threat, Sandor drawing his sword, for Tyrion to realize what he has put these men through. If Sandor Clegane is afraid, well... And he tries to explain the military need to hold the gate, Sandor suggests opening the gate and fighting them inside. This is not exactly reasonable, given that the one advantage they have is that wall. But Sandor isn't thinking in terms of Lannister victory. He is thinking in terms of keeping himself and his men as far away from the wildfire as they possibly can. Not too far from what Davos was thinking out on the river earlier. The Inferno is a totem of spiritual horror, as Tyrion intended, but it terrifies his own men as much as Stannis's, because sorcery is a sword without a hilt. Mandon Moore tries to back Tyrion up, but he only makes it worse. He embodies everything Sandor hates. A knight standing there with his immaculate plate. He hasn't had to do anything yet. Sandor has no more patience for Lannister authority because it has stopped protecting him and started endangering him. And Tyrion does figure that out, better late than never. As Sandor drowns his fear in booze, Tyrion realizes that morale is drowning with him. He needs a new leader to keep them all from breaking, as Bywater warned him, but who? Mandon Moore won't do because he's already like a walking corpse. He doesn't exactly inspire men. Tyrion realizes all at once that it's up to him. It's been up to him in the whole book from one form or another, the Lannister cause on his shoulders, and now he has no choice but to go out there and risk his life for the family. It's madness, he knows, but it's better than defeat. Defeat is shame. 
If there is one idea Tyrion has fully absorbed from Dad, it's that nothing is worse than shame. Yet, Tyrion must expose himself to shame in order to seize his pride, because unlike his father, he's not the kind of person people assume is going to be in charge. Few of the men take the battle call of a dwarf seriously. It is precisely on those terms that Tyrion wins them over. If I have the guts to do this, he tells them, what does that say about you? We've been saying throughout A Clash of Kings that Tyrion, like Stannis, has an optics problem. Both generals of the Battle of Blackwater believe that they are doomed to be hated, so neither put any effort into being loved. It is only now, with his back against the wall, that Tyrion finally learns how to make his negative reputation work for him. You despise the dwarf? Very well then. You have to fight with me, or people will say you were lesser than the dwarf everyone despises. It's a clever move, and it works, gathering a force behind him. For once in his life, Tyrion is in charge because of himself, because he put himself on the line. It's not his father, and it's not his name. And it is on those terms that he appeals to these men. He tells them not to fight for Joffrey, nor Casterly Rock, because he won't be either. His desire to do justice has always been hampered by his king and his house. Even as he fights for them, he admits his desire to let them all go. Instead, he says, the men should fight for their gate, their city, because those things belong to them, not any one of the kings. Tyrion thinks that'll be enough, but unlike Orpheus, he never looks back. <laughs> Tyrion is the protagonist of A Clash of Kings, and as you say, this is the climax of his arc in this book, when he commits himself to being that shadow on the wall. It's a brilliant point that George does in having that shadow of the wall imagery here and at Tyrion's climax, much as we saw in Tyrion 2, which is the, the really the start of his, his plot in, in, in A Clash of Kings. Because Tyrion has finally accepted that he, sim- he can't simply cast a long shadow on the wall of political power. He has to also do it in a military context. It's only when Tyrion finally answers his own call and takes his own defense of the city seriously that people take him seriously. All of these gold cloaks, sellswords, and common men who have been dying by the droves have done so on behalf of a Lannister aristocracy which gorges itself while they starve and doesn't give a shit while they die. It's only when Tyrion declares that he's actually going to go out there, he's going to lead the charge that the soldiers perk up and listen. Now, given the context of everything we've seen in A Clash of Kings, Tyrion crosses a bar so low that it's practically on the floor. And yet it's enough to get 40, at least 40 men to rally to Tyrion's banner and go out for one last sortie. You know, Tyrion is the protagonist of A Clash of Kings, as, as you've been putting so well. But he's also kind of a piece of shit here, too, in A Clash of Kings. See, giving the antler men to Joffrey for one really recent example of that. That reminds me of Robert Baratheon, of all people, a real piece of shit to inspire people to follow him into battle with his lead-from-the-front mentality. The officers have to be in the same danger as the men they're leading, and this is especially true in a, med- in a medievalish context of very close combat. And Tyrion finally accepts this mantle of doing it himself, refusing to perch atop the walls while others do his killing for him. He stops becoming the avatar and the person who is observing all the killing, and he's going to be the one who's going to be participating in some very soon. Say what you will about Tyrion. He's bad. He's not a good person. I don't like him a lot of the time. (laughs) He supports illegitimate rulers to the Iron Throne. He defeated Stannis, who I like a fair amount in in the story. (laughs) Say what you will about him, though. That is inspirational leadership here in A Clash of Kings Tyrion 13. And ultimately, it's just enough to delay Stannis from attacking the gates or breaking through them. And this allows for Tywin and the Tyrells to arrive to save the day and then to sweep all of Tyrion's glory away for himself. 
That's exactly what I was going to say. He, he makes the right decision to take charge of his life just before it is all taken away from him <laughs> again. <laughs> yep. Which Suck keeps up. happening. Like, you know, Brienne has her no chance, no choice moment. And then what happens? Mm-hmm. Then the Brotherhood shows up to go, actually, we think you're the worst person we've ever met. <laughs> and we would like to kill you, please. So but that's not, you know, some people I think see that as nihilism, but I think that's George, the bruised romantic, saying it's, it's really exciting and powerful when you take charge of your life and you make the right decisions. Go ahead and do that. Just don't think the world is going to change around you. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be the place it is. And that's mm-hmm. this is 100% Tyrion's version of that. Absolutely. So that will wrap us up for our depth portion of the episode. Transitioning over to foreshadowing and groundwork. So given that it was in Tyrion's first chapter in Game of Thrones that we learn about the Field of Fire and about Aegon's conquest, and here we have Tyrion wondering if watching all the wildfire is how Aegon the Conqueror felt at the Field of Fire, it certainly feels like George is foreshadowing Tyrion to be that aforementioned, as we were saying in our opening discussion, dragon rider, doesn't it, for this chapter? I think so. Even if not a dragon rider himself, certainly having to do with what the dragons do and encouraging Daenerys to go in a certain direction with them or being responsible for some kind of fire-related calamity, whatever you want to put it. The, yeah, the, the first couple books on reread seem littered with clues for Tyrion in this direction, so I strongly think that's that's where, where George is headed. Even if it's not directly to do with King's Landing, you know, obviously there's, there's Volantis and Pentos to deal with first, and Tyrion mm-hmm. might have a score or two to settle, so we'll see what he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandor's reputation as a coward and a deserter that dogs him, so to speak, in A Storm of Swords <laughs> begins here. This is something that Arya has heard about. It kind of struggles to internalize and deal with her. You know, the Brotherhood makes fun of him. Everyone assumes that Sandor Clegane, once the most ferocious man in the land, has gone soft after the Battle of Blackwater. Which obviously is kind of bullshit for a couple of reasons. One, that this battle was horrifying on its own. That, you know, it had the, the fire that took him right back to childhood. And also that, yeah, Sandor is just as ferocious as ever as we see in Storm. He just doesn't feel like working for the Lannisters anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's funny, right? So Tyrion gets all of the glory, like, taken away. And Sandor Clegane basically gets smeared by the Lannisters for for not fighting that and going out in that final sword yet, despite going out three times there. I, I think that working for the Lannisters is kind of a bad fucking deal. I mean, I think that's what we're, what George is ultimately communicating here. You're going to get screwed sure. one way or the other. You're going to get tarred as a coward if you're not like actually going out there and dying for them. And if you do go out there and nearly die for them in the form of Tyrion Lannister, you're going to have everything that you've earned rightfully in battle. And we'll cover it next week for, for Tyrion 14. But Tyrion is an amazing fighter out there and brave and heroic and nearly gets killed by you know, gets fragged by by Mandon Moore in, in the battle itself and yet his reward his, he, how is he remembered in, in the history books not at all most likely is if season 8 is any indication yeah I think yeah the best use you can make of the Lannisters is trying to use them as a stepping stone as I think Littlefinger and the Tyrells are both trying to do but even then you get ensnared in some of their worst stuff so Overall, overall, just best to stay away from the lions. They're, uh, you know, I think they're. We can see that clearly by the end of Feast and Dance that they're headed on a downward trajectory, and I think that's one of the big plot points to come. Of course, is, is the downfall of House Lannister as a unit. I think Tyrion will probably survive, but politically, yes. politically, I think they're they're pretty much done. They go, they gone. So, moving into our theory and discussion portion, we kind of been dancing around this question in this episode and in the in the, the Davos episodes recently. So, the, to ask the question, do we think Tyrion's use of the wildfire is justified? And I also wanted to ask the question of, you know, what if we put a table Joffrey's personal sadistic behavior? What if we say, like, you know, just pretend that Joffrey is the rightful heir and a swell guy and that, you know, politically we would totally be on Tyrion's side here, no questions. Would then we be okay with the wildfire? Yeah, what a question, right? I mean, uh, you know, George is not 
George wants us to George wants us to not come down to one side on this or the other. I think like he wants this to be a question that we we ponder about wildfire and this is real world applications I'll be talking about here in a second. But I will argue for the position that wildfire is is justified. So I can't wait to be roasted for this one. So so to speak. Ultimately, yeah, right. So to speak. <laughs> ultimately, uh, my bottom line up front argument is that wildfire is justified if. Tyrion, if Joffrey is the legitimate king and was a good guy and everything like that, because it is a legitimate military target in the form of Stannis' navy. So George has compared wildfire to Greek fire before, but it'd be hard not to compare wildfire to napalm and its usage, specifically in the Pacific Theater in World War II, and especially the Vietnam War, which is probably where George is borrowing most the most from, given his experience in protesting the war, and given also, at this point, too, the plethora of movies that had come out, especially in the 1980s, which depicted napalm usage on the battlefield and showed us what what it actually looks like and then the usage thereof. So is napalm a legitimate form of weaponry on the battlefield? I'm not going to make a moral case for or against it, but I will note that the United Nations Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, yes, that is a real UN convention that they have somewhere in the New York building, in 1980 does not prohibit use of napalm against military targets, but does prohibit it against civilian targets. So Tyrion uses the wildfire against a strictly military target in the form of Stannis' navy. So at least the UN probably wouldn't send Tyrion to the Hague for war crimes for the sole use of it, probably. Then there's also the close linkage of wildfire and dragonfire, something that we see in the world of ice and fire, where the where wildfire is used to try to birth dragons by Aegon V. And we also see it as well in Fire and Blood with, the, with some of the things that Megor was getting up to in King's Landing. So in a vacuum, both of these fiery substances work as tools in warfare, and the morality of its usage depends on the user and the cause. I myself, to use the example of Dragonfire, think that Danny's use of, I, I put wildfire in the notes, but Danny's use of Dragonfire against the slavers in A Storm of Swords is justified, though not without major negative consequences that we are definitely going to unpack for Danny's arc in A Dance with Dragons. Dragonfire, of course, is not always justified. See, for instance, that asshole known as Aemon One-Eye from Fire and Blood Volume 1 in The Dance of the Dragons. Wildfire 2 seems similar in that respect. Were Joff the legitimate king and a good dude, I'm really stretching it here, then Tyrion's usage of wildfire is justified. Whereas, the counterexample is Aerys the Second Targaryen's attempt to wildfire King's Landing and kill everyone is definitely, definitely not justified. So ultimately, I'd argue that with wildfire, like with most weapons, not all, most weapons, it's about the user and intent rather than the weapon in question. I mean, it's a short defensive wildfire, but ladies and gentlemen, I rest my case. No, I totally agree with with your points. If it's you know, it's within the uh, a fairly strict military context, and it is you know, you can certainly make the case that the Lannisters stole the throw, but it is you know being undertaken by the defensive force. And again, that's why I wanted to think about it in terms of what if the Lannisters really were the aggrieved party? Would we think about this differently? Would we think about it in terms of well, what else are the you know the aggrieved good guys supposed to do? But do what they have to to survive? How else are they supposed to defeat the clearly evil Stannis Baratheon? <laughs> and I could I could see that being a way of looking at it. I think there's the case being made even within the battlefield context that it is inhumane. That's something you were talking about the other week that. You know, once the sailors hit the water, they're basically non-combatants at that point. They're they are no threat to you, and now you are boiling them alive. Mm-hmm. This seems hideous. And it, it, but it really, I think you know, I don't even have to make the central case against using wildfire. Tyrion himself admits to the central case against using wildfire. An arrow could be aimed, and a spear, even the stone from a catapult. But wildfire had a will of its own. Once loosed, it was beyond the control of mere men. 
I think generals on all sides of this war have a responsibility not to use weapons they know full well they cannot control. There's always going to be, you know, unknown unknowns. There's always going to be matters outside your purview that just happen in war and you deal with. But Tyrion knows that he can't control wildfire. He knows better and he still does it. And this has the potential to turn into a destroy the town in order to save it situation, you know, regarding the napalm at any moment. It almost happened during the riot that the, that the city just went up in flames. Now, in terms of Tyrion's culpability, he did not put the wildfire there. It's worth noting that safely disposing of the wildfire is a mammoth task, especially in the middle of a war. Honestly, there might not be a safe way to dispose of that much wildfire in a you know populated city without someone realizing what's going on. I don't think Tyrion has any good options. But he did learn from his father well. He is using terror as a weapon, a deliberate escalation of the war. Soldiers live and, bo- live and die by different rules. I get that, and you laid that out well. But I, I have to wonder what happens when those rules are changed around them without their knowledge or consent. I feel like our belief that soldiers are more acceptable targets is rooted in the understanding that A, they signed up for it on some level, and B, they can fight back, which, you know, civilians traditionally can't. But did any of these men sign up to be at ground zero for the birth of a Balrog over the water? <laughs> did they have any way of fighting back against that thing? If not, is there any real distinction to be made between Davos Seaworth and Sansa Stark? I feel like at that moment, Davos may as well not have been a soldier. Yeah, I mean, these, these, are, these are excellent points. And I think the point that, that, that strikes me is that Tyrion knows that he can't control the substance and he uses it anyways. So he was using it against a legitimate military target. Again, if Joffrey is the good and righteous king of, of Westeros and legitimate as well. But also at the same time, what is to stop the wildfire from burning the city down, as you were saying, having unintended consequences? And, you know, I, I said before about how I think that most weapons tend to have a legitimate usage and really the, the morality of the of lays with the, the person who's using it and the reason why they're using it. You know, I, I think back to that Vietnam example. Uh, to take it away from napalm, I think of a, of a substance like Agent Orange, right, mm-hmm. which was a substance that, that the, the United States... Army and Air Force, Marine Corps, Navy used in Vietnam specifically to try to deny the Viet Cong, uh, the guerrilla, the communist guerrilla movement in South Vietnam, the cover and concealment in order to infiltrate South Vietnam, which is, you know, seems like pretty reasonable, right? And in the, in the grand scale of things, you know, try to prevent them from getting into South Vietnam to try and prop up a despotic, corrupt semi-democratic regime in the form of, of South Vietnam. It's, it's a long, Vietnam's a very long topic. We'll have a Patreon episode about Vietnam or opinions about Vietnam at some point. Oh down my, the road. absolutely. Well, that can we, only go well. Like 50, 50 parts, yeah. Um, but I think like the, the longer term effects of Agent Orange, which were not well known in the 1960s, but were known at some level, was that it ended up deforesting large parts of, of Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos specifically. And those impacts linger on to the year 2021, almost 60 years since they, their usage in, in Vietnam. And to the point now where like Vietnam is an ally of the United States, Cambodia is as well, Laos is as well. All these people, the, the, the political things that have brought us to war back in the day, those don't exist anymore. And I think with the wildfire, the unintended consequence for Tyrion's usage of it here is that he doesn't destroy all of it. There are still caches of wildfire that are still stored in, in King's Landing. I don't think he burned through his, his entire stock. And even if he did burn through his entire stock, there still is the stuff that Aerys II has under under different parts of the city. As George R. Martin said in 2013, 
those caches are still under certain parts of King's Landing that are still hidden there, the ones that Jamie references in A Storm of Swords. So I think that when you're looking at a ethical the usage of, of a weapon in any context, whether it's a bullet, whether it's fire, napalm, wildfire, Agent Orange, nuclear weapons, which is a whole other ball of wax we can talk about at some other point. There's another Patreon episode right there, nuclear weapons and uh, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But I, I think you have to look at the long scale of human history and whether the usage of those weapons might be justified in the immediate short term, but will it have long lasting consequences? And I think for Westeros specifically, wildfire, the production thereof, ends up will end up being part of the reason why the whole city is going to go up in massive flames come probably a dream of spring when Daenerys arrives with dragon fire. Yeah, I agree. It's the literalization of the idea that of those, you know, of, of chemicals from from Vietnam having lingering effects or, you know, from for mines showing up years later all over the world that people have to deal with. And, you know, it's psychologically that those lingering effects, too, we see with the Roberts Rebellion generation, how they're constantly dealing with, with trauma. And, you know, you think all those characters have wounds that they thought were resolved and weren't. And the wildfire is just that on an enormous scale. It's it's what sticks around. It's it's the, the trauma lingering in your psyche is something that both Tyrion and Stannis are trying to deal with in their own way. I, I think Tyrion has a, has a pretty clear justification within his worldview to do what he has to 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 keep his side alive but i think there i think george is definitely haunted by the concept of escalation and escalation only happens when you when you feel totally justified in what you're doing and i think we also see an exploration of that on stannis's side of the war and i think Tyrion, i think also Tyrion understands in the storm of swords that oh no matter what i did in the battle i was not prepared for what came next i was not prepared for what winning would be and being in charge still. I didn't think... He like palpably did not think about it. And I understand why. He was just getting through the day. But I think that's also a real-world thing. That we are... We are rarely good enough for the causes we say we're fighting for. You know what I mean? We rarely live up... Even if those causes are legitimately great, we rarely actually live up to them afterwards. And that's that... I think that casts a pall. And I think George understands that. I think it's a perfect way of putting it, man. And I appreciate your perspective, even if we're disagreeing so vociferously here on the, on these different topics. So viscerally and hatefully. How will, mm. how will we recover? Oh, gosh, we are like the epitome of the uh, civility is dead argument that we've seen on, on online. Very true. Of the Very online. true. I'm kidding. Anyways, I think that's going to wrap us up for this uh, analysis of a Clash of Kings Tyrion 13. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you to all of you who have been participating in the live stream. I've been seeing the comments. Yes, I've been seeing them, Frank. I see all your comments. I see every single They're thing beautiful. that you say. They're art. They're art. They're yeah, art. They're definitely art. It's art. It's art. Yeah, right. Exactly. You have to eat something, eat the trash. What you currently have in your <laughs> mouth is art. Mm-hmm. That's our comment section. <laughs> that's great. As always, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. You can follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or at PortQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon, Red Raluhu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Merivel, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjagat, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, 
Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stone Haven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker at the End of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, and Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler of the Patriarchy. Thank you so much, as always, to our High Lords and Ladies. Yeah, thank you folks so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. So, join us next week for Clash of Kings, Sansa 6, and Tyrion 14, in which everything continues to be on fire. And I think we have another debate schedule for that one, don't we? I believe we do. We'll have another another uh, no-holds-barred fight at the end of that episode. But yeah, that's <laughs> going to be a, a combination one, which we've done a couple times uh, in a Clash of Kings. Uh, Sansa 6 and Tyrion 14 are both wonderful chapters, but they're both pretty short, so we thought we would combine them and then move on to the, the climax of the entire battle sequence with Sansa 7. So we hope you enjoyed the Battle of Blackwater episodes. We, uh, we certainly are, and that's going to be a really fun twofer. Cannot wait for that one. And yes, I am absolutely enjoying these Battle of Blackwater episodes. It's been so much fun. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all of you who have watched us. Thank you again to all of our patrons. And we'll see you all next week for Clash Kings, Sansa 6, and Tyrion 14.